dream or nightmare, we have to live our experience as it is, and we have to live it awake. We live in a world which is penetrated through and through by science, and which is both whole and real. We cannot turn it into a game simply by taking sides. Jacob Bernowski Recognizing that we don't have all the answers is the beginning of science, just as it's the first step on the road to wisdom. That may seem trite, but it's worth repeating at the current time, as popular discourse appears more and more to be governed by ideological certainty than by rational inquiry. If ideology intrudes into the process of science, the inevitable gaps in our knowledge can be exploited by those who wish to further their own ends, whether they're economic, political, or religious. We are told that science will never explain love, or that science cannot possibly present an accurate or complete picture of this portion of reality because it's been performed by individuals who themselves are flawed for one reason or another, by their birth identity, their politics, or the position of wealth or stature, and that we need to root out or ignore their contributions if we are to achieve real progress. These are games, pure and simple. It takes remarkable conceit to claim that science will never explain this or that, because it implies that you know enough to know what we can never know. Equally, who is to decide who is or is not worthy enough to contribute to the process? Science proceeds by dialectic, where all ideas are subject to debate and attack, and bad ideas get rooted out precisely because the community as a whole has goals that transcend the specific pensions of individual scientists. Welcome to The Shape of Dialogue. Today I'm joined by renowned physicist and science communicator Lawrence Krauss. Lawrence is one of the leading physicists of his generation, an incredible science communicator and a multi-best-selling author. He has written over 500 publications and 12 popular science books, including the international bestsellers The Physics of Star Trek, A Universe from Nothing and The Physics of Climate Change. In addition, he has written for leading publications, including the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the New Yorker. Today, we talk about his new book, The Known Unknowns, The Unsolved Mysteries of the Cosmos. In America, its title is The Edge of Knowledge. You'll hear the pitter-patter of Lawrence's dogs, and we even get to meet one of them, the very cute Tasha. Also, completely unrehearsed and unexpectedly, Lawrence does a magic trick for us across 12,000 kilometers via the internet. And now I give you Lawrence Krauss. Welcome, Lawrence. Thanks for joining me on the podcast again. Well, it's great to be back with you virtually once again. Yeah, yeah. It's an amazing honor. Maybe to... someday we'll actually be in the same uh, hemisphere. Yeah, we'll, we'll see what I can do. Yeah. Uh, it's a great honor to talk to you again. Um, we're going to talk to uh, we're going to talk about your new book, which um, in America and elsewhere is called The Edge of Knowledge, but in Britain and New Zealand is called The Known Unknowns. Um, yeah, it's the British. Yeah, yeah. I don't know in New Zealand if you could buy the American version, but I'm pretty sure you have to buy the UK version. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I actually like the the um, Edge of Knowledge name, but I think both names are great. So, um, yeah, I've listened to it on um, audiobooks, and it's it's absolutely fantastic. I actually listened to it about five times. It's 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 uh, wonderful. You're, you're yeah. a masochist. Yeah, well, no, it's, well, there's so much in it that it's 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 worth it. Um, and um, yeah, you, you you're a great 
reader. So it's it's a pleasure to listen okay. to. Yeah, and I recommend everyone should go out and buy, um, you know, the version they want and uh, and read it. It's great. So so we started with um, first a quote from Jacob Bronowski and then um, a, a, the beginning of your epilogue. I think it'd be quite interesting for you to talk to us about who Jacob Bronowski is and why he's a hero of yours. Well, he, Jacob Bronowski, in my mind, was this the best, and this is going to upset some people, but the best science popularizer who's ever been on TV. And that includes, in my opinion, Carl Sagan. And I know a lot of people will be upset to hear that. But Bronowski, uh, uh, his famous series was called The Ascent of Man, and it was many parts. And what was remarkable about it is that unlike American TV, uh, Bronowski was a was a, a, a polymath. He was a biologist, but he also was an expert in art and literature. And he, and he was riveting to watch and listen to. And unlike most American science TV, both before then and after then, which is usually filled with animations and fancy stuff to keep keep people who have a hard time concentrating uh, to uh, watching the program. Much of it is is just looking at Jacob Bernowski. He's in different locations, but you know Jacob Bernowski standing in front of a tree talking about quantum mechanics is more riveting than and I could mention n names of people I know who've done uh, programs in the United States. Uh, and and that ascent of man is 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 incredibly ambitious and panoramic in its discussion of the whole of human history, science, and culture. Uh, it, it was just a. a, a a uh, tour de force, and and Bernowski also wrote a number of books, which I which I love: the Origins of Knowledge and Imagination, and 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 and, and discussions of the rightful place of science. And um, I think he was, uh, uh, in many ways, a role model uh, for what I what I have tried to do. Except I don't have his accent, or perhaps his breadth of knowledge about many things. Uh, so so he certainly was a um, uh, uh, I don't know their hero, but but uh, but uh, but someone that I admire tremendously, and that quote, which I which is from the epilogue of my new book, is one of my favorite quotes of, uh, at all. I mean, it really captures exactly the fact that you can play games in the world, you can do this or that, but the, the world doesn't care. And science, uh, no matter what you what you think you'd like to do, and what what and, and what constraints you'd like to impose upon nature, nature is going to do whatever it does regardless yeah yeah well i it, re- it really resonates with me because i remember that um that series i you know watched it when it came out and it was a big influence on me at the time i, I don't think i must have been about 10 or something like that and um i've subsequently you know bought i have the the box set so it's a, it's a great watch even after all these years yeah, so, highly, highly. Well, we watched it. I watched it at a science museum where I worked, actually, and they, and they 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 did an episode a week. It was really a lot of fun. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. Um. So, what's your new book about? Everything. <laughs> <laughs> it's about the questions. The interesting thing is, uh, you know, obviously, in each of my books, I try to think of new ways to relate to people beyond just scientists, and. Um, this follows on nicely after my last few books, uh, The Universe from Nothing, which really at, was a, addressed one of the fundamental questions that people have, why is there something rather than nothing? And, and since questions are so important, I thought that this book 
I would try and look at the, at the foundational questions at the forefront of science, the questions that are still driving our research. And what's really great is they happen to be the same questions that everyone has themselves, whether they're scientists or not about the universe. How did the universe begin? What happened before the Big Bang? Are we alone in the universe? You know, when I see green, is it the same as when you see green? Uh, how did life originate? Uh, all, all of the fundamental questions are really still driving science. And, and since I think it's important to explain to people that science is based on, on asking questions. And as I say, I think in the first words of the book, the, word, the, word, the three words I don't know are the most important words in science because that's, it's not knowing that pushes us forward. It's not that we're content and have this, this uh, well-defined scripture that we have to we have to go back to all the time it's an inv not knowing is an invitation to know it's an invitation to explore and uh, and in my mind it's what excites scientists and i'm sure it's what excites young people it's certainly what excited me when i was a young person and so i thought it was really a nice way to tie together my own fascination with the forefront of science following on my other books obviously if we talk about what we know we don't know it really requires me to go into what we do know. And so it's not a celebration of ignorance, it's a celebration of this, of how far we've come, and yet the the excitement of what there is left to learn. And and it's, it's divided into five major sections. The book began many different ways, as most of my books do, but settled down on five major sections, which time, space, matter, life, and consciousness, which, which encompass pretty well all of the uh, of the of the the forefronts of our thinking about the universe and and uh, and the, the the most important questions that I think people would like to hear about. So it's a yeah it's a it's a survey of those things we uh, we know we don't know, and a celebration of what we do know. And an invitation, it sort of you you intimated this, an invitation for the young to to take up the baton. Well, yeah, I mean, it's an invitation for the old too, but they're less likely <laughs> to do it. Um, but uh, they've got more time. Yeah, I mean, the very, at the very last, in the end of the epilogue, which I, I read, read at the beginning, I, I point out that that's what it was—a book by Richard Feynman, the character of physical law—that first inspired me to realize that there was a lot that it hadn't all been done before. I read it when high school, when I was in high school, and made me realize that all of the open questions that were still around, and that excited me and made me hope I could contribute to that noble search and I have tried in my scientific career and I certainly hope although I don't, uh, I don't have expectations but I certainly hope that perhaps this book will so inspire a, a young person today to take up the search and maybe push the edge of knowledge further yeah yeah I, I actually found it a very optimistic book um, and and sort of ironically I, I found it sort of deeply philosophical as well uh, oh, that's, that's yeah, nice. which that's which, which I thought thought you might like because you know, um, people think I don't like philosophy, but it's not true. But yeah, yeah. in any case, yeah, I, I, you know, how could I think being called a philosopher that the philosopher is a wonderful thing? Anyway, yeah, go on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, do you know, um, you know, David Deutsch's so physicist David Deutsch's sentiment? Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah about mm -hmm. sort of uh, the the quest for knowledge is infinite. 
and and it results in an optimistic mindset. And what I like about your book and what David Deutsch is saying, it sort of counters the, the very strong narrative that I hear sort of on a daily basis that we're all doomed, basically. Uh, I mean, in a sense, we are all doomed in, in the end. Um, yeah, you know, when the heat, heat, death, up, yeah. heat death of the universe happens, but, but it's a long ways away. It's a long ways between now and then. So, so just, you know, I, you may have probably heard me say my favorite quote from a friend, my a friend of mine, who's a writer named Cormac McCarthy, and um, he's a very dark. He writes very dark books, very very famous dark books, uh, The Road, No Country for Old Men, um, and uh, and others. And, uh, and I, when I first met him, he was a very chipper and smiley guy. And I said, well, how could you be that way? Look, you know, your books are so dark. And he said, well, I'm a pessimist, but that's no reason to be gloomy. (laughs) Which is my mantra, I think. Yeah. Well, I I recently um, met a a Welshman and I was, he was a photographer and I was raving on about how wonderful his photography photography was. And he said, oh, no, no, you you need to think like a Welshman. We're all doomed. So that's sort of the opposite. (laughs) Well, that's a good starting point because, it, you know, it's not such a, even that isn't pessimistic. It means enjoy it while you can, right? There's well, a great song about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think that's, you know, when when you do talk about, uh, you know, the end of the universe. I mean, just actually just talk to about the heat death of the universe so people know what we're talking about. You know, what what's actually well, going to happen in the end? You know, you say you say you don't make predictions except for three trillion years in, in the future. So what what is going to happen? Well, yeah, I don't like the term heat death of the universe. I think that's the old-fashioned way of thinking about it. It's not the, the, the end of the universe is actually more remarkably miserable than just heat death. <laughs> okay. We should really we'll bring it on. We should really explain how truly, utterly miserable it's going to be. <laughs> Great. And 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 the, what the change primarily is the fact that that it's not just that the universe is cooling down; it's that the universe is expanding ever faster, and the expansion of the universe is accelerating, and that means that. That, that what we see will decrease. The, the, the distant galaxies that we can now see will one day in the far future be receding from us in space faster than the speed of light because the space can expand faster than the speed of light. Things can't move through space faster than the speed of light. So the rest of the universe will disappear on a time scale of order a few trillion years and, uh, and we'll be left with only our local group of galaxies that's bound together. They'll eventually collide and make one large galaxy and then the stars will probably coalesce into a large supermassive black hole. And we're talking eons and eons and eons. Um, and then and then if Stephen Hawking's right, that black hole will evaporate over a, an even longer time and, and, and that radiation will just dissipate and the universe will become cold, dark, and empty. And that's the far future. That- and it's a remarkable future because it means the longer we wait, we used to think the longer we wait, the more we'd see of the universe, but because the universe is expanding, the longer we wait, the less we'll see. Right. Yeah. 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 Is, yeah. yeah well, it's a, yeah a beautiful way to end in the end. But yeah, as <laughs> but as um, none of us have to worry about that in the here and now. So no, no, there's we have many other things we can. If you're interested in worrying, there's many other things you can worry about. Yeah, that are much more urgent and pressing. But just going back to you know how I found your book optimistic and and also David Deutsch's sentiment. Why 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 should we be optimistic? Because in spite of because first of all we should be optimistic because we're living at a time when we discovered so many remarkable things about nature. 
here we are in the middle of nowhere and, and you know, and, and these animals that are evolved and it's hard and it's reasonably certain that whatever evolution led to our ability to think, it's certainly the ability to understand quantum mechanics was a side effect, unintended. And, and, and as written by friend Richard Dawkins says, the ability of some of us to understand quantum mechanics. But, um, but uh, uh, so first of all, it's a celebration of life. It's, it's um, uh, a, a, you know, a, a celebration of, of, uh, of the moment that we're in. But it's also, a, it also, it's also optimistic because in spite of all we've learned, every day we're being surprised. And there's so much more to learn. There are reasons to wake up because tomorrow you're going to be surprised. And, and that's the optimism the, because uh, whatever, as I say at the beginning of the book, there's a book by Sir James Jeans written in 1930 called The Mysterious Universe, which was, which was a very important book in its day. It's quaint now, of course, because in 1930, the view of the universe was quite different than that, that is now and of science. Uh, and I'm hoping that in, in, in another 90 years, if not before, my book will seem quaint because uh, this same book written 50 years from now will be quite different. And that's wonderful. That means, you know, that, that just think of what, of what there is to learn and what there is to discover. And, and so it's worth hanging around to see. Yeah. So, so, but what what about things like climate change and you know deforestation well, look, and um, um, you know extinction rates, all those sort of things? Because I, I, well, I, I, I have I have young young people tell tell me that they don't want to have children because um, you know you don't want to bring children into this terrible world. No, that's that's not an irrational thing. I can understand it. I, I think it's been true for. There are lots of reasons not to bring children in the world, but there are reasons to bring children in, and I think people should not be compelled to have children. But I understand. Look, we are living in challenging times. Uh, on the other hand, if in spite of climate change and in spite of the the, uh, uh, the extinctions and whatever and many other things, I think if you ask people, say, so, "Well, you think it's bad now?" Okay, you know, here's a time machine. Go back to the year fourteen twenty-five and see if you'd rather live there, when when there isn't, you know. And I, I think most people realize we're pretty still pretty darn lucky to be living now. Now that does not mean we should we should close our eyes or stick our heads in the sand. Accepting the challenges and problems is part of the part of getting the solutions. So yes, we are in we are we have dire circumstances in many ways. But but uh, but we can all participate in encouraging uh, things to get better. And the first the the first way to do that is to realize you don't know everything. And and the second way is to try and communicate with with the, everyone you know about science. So the the future emerges through curiosity, doesn't it? And and that's why I think you know it's. That's why I recommend people should have children, because we we need as many people um, to be curious to find out these unknown unknowns. Well, that, that it's certainly true that we depend on the next generation uh, for many things. There's one of my favorite lines in physics that comes from Max Planck, who said, "Physics proceeds one funeral at a time," which is which is appropriate. And and of course, new next new generations add new vitality, new questions, new, new energy. 
And that's one really good reason to, to have a next generation. I think the other, there's another reason too, which is that children ask questions and, it, and, and it, it, taken properly, they can inspire you to, to, to uh, learn yourself. But you know that. But I think curiosity is is essential, and the central part of curiosity, once again, is recognizing that you don't know everything. If you think you do, or if you think the question, all questions are settled of, of interest, which unfortunately is the dogma that so so destroys work on the left and the right uh, today, then 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 you don't make any progress because you don't have any curiosity and ability to learn. Yeah, and continuing the refrain of children, the importance of play. Yeah, yeah, play. Well, for me, I mean, that. in fact, it's always been playing for me. Um, I, uh, I, uh, I remember, you know, when I was first, uh, when I was at Harvard, my first job that I had, you know, talking, I would be working with now a friend of mine uh, uh, and uh, Sheldon Glashow won the Nobel Prize in physics and we wrote a bunch of papers together, but it was, you know, it was like playing, you know, at the backboard, it was yelling and joking. But for me, uh, work has never been indistinct or has never been distinguishable from anything else. It's, it's, I'm very lucky. And I, and I hope more people are in that kind of situation where, where you're doing something that's joyful and playful and it should be playful and again when people take it too seriously or think that there's they're afraid of so many things then they stop doing science well just carry on why why is play that why is that so important um why is, well, that, that, why is that sort of mindset important um um well because i think playing allows you to lighten up and open your mind um, and if you're not enjoying what you're doing, you're also probably not doing a good job either. But I think play means you're exploring. Uh, you're exploring possibilities, and you're willing to you're willing to go places. You, you don't have the inhibitions. Play opens you up to 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 your world around you, and um, and so uh, um, I think that's what that that's the really important part of play. Yeah, yeah, it, 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 I think that that. It allows you to go into spaces that you w- wouldn't normally, in a sense, or and, and then and yeah, they may, it, may be out of bounds too. Yeah, well, I think as I say, it removes those inhibitions. You, you're willing to run for the ball, and you're willing to run out of bounds for the ball. If you, I mean, yeah. to put that kind of play on it. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, and you focus. It also focuses you, I think, as well. Right, and I'm really interested in the. Um, the dynamic, the creative dynamic in, in science. I mean, we as a, I mean, I'm a creative on the artistic front myself, um, mm-hmm. and I'm fascinated by that. I'm, I'm sure that the scientific process is a creative process in, in, in similar ways that the artistic process is. Would you agree with that? Science is, you know, I, I remember once being at an event with a with a friend of mine, Alan Alda. He's an American actor, um, and he said uh, he was speaking and he was saying he was comparing art to science, and it was wonderful. He said something like, "Science requires creativity, and art requires precision," and it was wonderful because it was the opposite of what most people would say. 
But that's the whole point. Science is like the arts and music and literature, and, and there's nothing different. It's, they all change the, our picture of our place within the cosmos. And and I don't even know if the last time I was on the program I said this, but it's it's, it's something I have that, that I've said a number of times that that it's in some sense unfortunate that science produces such wonderful technology because it convinces people that the only science that's worthwhile if it doesn't is is science that produces technology. And if you're asking questions about the beginning of the universe or the origins of life, people sometimes might say, well, you know, what's what's the point of that? It's not going to make a faster car or a better toaster. But I point out to them that, you know, they don't ask that for a Mozart symphony or Eric Clapton riff or a Picasso painting or whatever. And uh, because, you know, because the art and music and literature are appreciated for just that, by inspiring us, by, by, by making being human worth being human and, and changing your perspective of yourself. And that's exactly what science does. So for me, it's the ideas of science that are the most important things. And the technology is a wonderful side effect. Right, yeah. Uh, do you know the, the um, Oscar Wilde quote, art is useless? And, and, and he's basically saying art needs to be useless for it to be of value. And that resonates with, with what you're saying. Absolutely. Well, I, I've never heard anything that Oscar Wilde said that I disagreed with. Yeah. So. <laughs> so, I just wish I could say things as well as he did in many ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, no, absolutely. I think, I think it's... I think it, he's right in that way. Now, science, of course, is not useless, but 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 you're you're no scientist is do, is going into work every day to do science to save the world. They're not saying I'm going to go into work today and save the world. They're going to be I'm going into do work that I enjoy doing, and I'm, it's fun and and you know and maybe it'll have an impact. But but it's the fun part. I think it's the fact that it's the fact that. It, it tickles their brains that that is the reason people are doing it not and 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 it's great that it has such good side effects as well yeah you know you've talked in the, uh, in the past about the cultural value of, of science so it's 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 up there in, in mm -hmm. the pantheon with art and music and etc yeah, and it's it you know, distinguishes us from other animals yeah 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 i mean basically that i mean you know I've, I've read your book and you know, most of it is is going to be irrelevant to me, and most of it is I have I will never have the capacity to actually understand fully. Um, but it is mind blowingly fascinating, and it's enriching. Knowing it, well, well, I think yeah. Well, I mean, knowing and knowing are two different things in some sense. Look, uh, you know, you being being able to practice science or being able to play a Mozart concerto requires a certain ability, but doesn't mean you can't appreciate it. And and and. Uh, the books that I write, I meant are for people to appreciate. They don't have to understand how to derive everything. But the concepts are fascinating, and the perspective of it is fascinating. And if I can convey that, those are the things that for a layperson are important. You don't have to be an expert in everything to, to be able to enjoy it. And um, and so, um, there, and there, you know, you said we'll never be able to. I mean, you never know. Never is a long time. <laughs> Especially near the end, as my as 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 yeah, you know, know, eternity is a long time. Yeah. Especially near the end, as Woody Allen said. But but um, uh, uh, you never know what's going to happen, so you don't know what what you'll understand and what you won't till you try. Yeah. Well. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, you've got more hope for me than me about <laughs> whether I'm going to understand quantum mechanics. Um, well, it's all right. No one understands quantum mechanics. Yeah. Well, so you're it's, okay. it's that Feynman quote: if you under, if you think you understand yeah. it, you don't. 
Yeah. 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 And I, you know, and, and I spent, I mean, I was very pleased in my book to be able to talk about quantum mechanics in a different sort of way, because so many people try and mystify it, especially scientists, but many worlds interpretation and collapse of the wave function and this and that make it sound like it's something much more mystical than it is. And, and, and I, and I, 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 uh, I follow a, 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 an argument from a, a, a mentor and friend of mine, another physicist at Harvard, Sidney Coleman, who gave a great lecture called Quantum Mechanics in Your Face. And, uh, and, um, uh, and it's a wonderful way of, of realizing that the quantum mechanical world is different and strange, but most of the strangest of people experience is simply because they're trying to explain the quantum mechanical world in terms of this classical kludge and it's, that's the wrong way to do things. You should try and explain the classical world in terms of quantum mechanics. Yeah, yeah. So they're, they're getting, it, getting it backwards. You've said, quote, having taught for 40 years, I'm very wary of teaching. Now, I, I find that interesting because I've also taught for 40 years. And I, I'd like to um, know why you're wary of teaching. Well... <laughs> Because I think teaching is largely an illusion um, in the sense that there's not, there is some learning going on in the classroom, but, but much more so is there, people are, the real learning is happening when students are alone or, or working things out or talking with their friends. I, I think of teaching in some sense as motivating. Um, and and it, what I can do is motivate people to learn. But I think the real learning happens in a different place for the most part than the classroom. So I'm very wary of, of, um, of, of, of thinking of myself as imparting knowledge as much as motivating people to, to, to gain knowledge. Yes. Yeah. yeah I, I would... and, and it's in some sense in my book too. I mean, what I hope I'll do is that I'll motivate people. I mean, I, obviously I'm explaining things in the book and I hope I explain them in a way that's understandable, but really I'm hoping that it'll turn people on to, explore some of these ideas on their own. Yeah, I, you know, again, having taught for 40 years, I actually fully agree with you, um, especially the, uh, you know, the, the highly talented people. Um, you sort of don't have to teach them at all, really. Um, but, no, you just don't get in the way. Yes, you don't get in the way. <laughs> I, I sort of, I view teaching as more like pointing in a direction, say, go over there, mm. you know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, sometimes it's also getting the students to point you in the right direction. Yeah, yeah, but but it, it, it can be. And in fact, I I tell speaking of I don't know I, I I tell teachers and parents that I I wish more teachers would say I don't know more often. Right. You know, because then say I don't know. Let's figure it out together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Rather than these are the facts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, but just the inverse of that, there are good and bad teachers. So teaching does make. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, like everything, it's a lot easier to do bad. It's a lot easier to do harm than good. (laughs) Yeah, there's more. A lot quicker too. There's more ways to get it wrong in the universe than get get it right. Yeah, no, that's right. It's easy to tear things down. It's hard to build them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think think that's that is very very. um, Yeah, again, deeply. It has something to do with the second law of thermodynamics. (laughs) But anyway, (laughs) well, just explain that. Entropy. What, what, entropy. I mean, entropy. and I talk about entropy in life and, and the confusions that people have about life in the chapter about the origins of life, because that's been a big, you know, one of the things you hear about as well, 
in, you know, entropy is always increasing. States are always getting more disordered. Well, how can life, life must be divine. And of course, it's a misunderstanding of the second law of thermodynamics. It's um, uh, uh, closed systems always tend, don't get more ordered, okay? But that, that means they don't exchange energy with the environment. But if you're exchanging energy with the environment, and we certainly am, I'm here right now getting sunlight coming in this window, um, then systems can, can become much more ordered. And um, uh, a snowflake is my favorite example. I mean, you know, it, it takes water and you produce this beautiful Christmas tree-like structures. And, um, and so life, it depends crucially on the constant input of energy. If you stop that input of energy in a living being, you'll see how disordered they get in a short time. Yeah. Hey, I think it's time to acknowledge the dogs. Um, just well, it's time. Yeah, I think. I think. Well, one of them is here. Yeah, is back in my room. Because I'm you sure want, you want me to get pick her up. Oh, yeah. Why not? Why not say hello? Because because people people yeah. have been hearing the petter petter okay. and probably okay. wondering okay. what it is. Let's see what I can do. Here, touch Come here, girl. Here's Tasha, the old one. She's a seventeen. She's a seventeen-year-old. Oh, she's absolutely gorgeous. What is she? I think she's well. She's a mutt. She's part terrier. Right. She was my mother's dog, and when my mother mother died last year. Oh right. Oh beautiful. Right. Over. Yes. So she's like my mother. She's seven. She's old and feisty. Yeah, she's beautiful. Anyway, so she and we have a young, younger dog. Yeah. Who's, what? who's resigned to her presence now? That wasn't her. Right. Okay. Well, you know, so we did that so um, so everyone knows that the pitter patter was was, was little beautiful dogs running around. Well, I, I, I say, um, you know, we're all mongrels, so, um, you know, she can join the yeah. club. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, one other thing I've heard you say is um, science can't prove anything to be true, can only prove things to be false. Mm-hmm. To be totally it's honest, it's not just me. That's uh, that's that, that goes back to some very famous philosophers of science, or <laughs> philosophers and historians of science. Um, but you know, it's 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 has to do with the fact that science can falsify things. But obviously, how do you prove something's absolutely true? Well, you have to do an infinite number of experiments to be able to prove that. You know, right. you, you, Newton's laws work for cannonballs and baseballs, and even rocket ships are on earth for the most part here but you know you don't know if they're around the corner there's going to be an experiment that shows you that you have to modify it and that's been the history of physics so 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 there's nothing we know that's absolutely true at all scales as far as i as far as i know um and 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 but but what is what is true is if you have an idea and a proposal and it disagrees with an experiment then it's wrong forever and and that's and and uh and that's the great thing. So it's and it's like Sherlock Holmes, um, uh, I have, uh, who said, you know, you, you get rid of what's impossible, or you know, and all of what's left is, you get rid of everything that is wrong, and what's left is what's right. I haven't had a Sherlock Holmes book yet. So. Right, but I don't... do a magic trick. For, I can do a magic trick for you with this book later. Okay, well, yeah, anyway. yeah. I, I saw the cards in the background, so I thought that a magic trick would go down well. Oh, okay. Well, you want to hear? We can. You can. Try, yeah. You can do, try this. You can do, do it out. But I, you can try it. I'll see. Okay. That's what I'm learning. It all depends on you being able to see the pages. Can you read the pages? Yeah. If I yeah. Yeah. Do that. 
Okay, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna flip the pages and you tell me where to stop. Stop. So you just pick one. Yeah, um, I can't see the words, but yeah, okay, I can see it now. Oh, 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 oh sorry, okay. Um, I can see it now. Okay, look, now I'm gonna look away. Yeah. Can you see the first word on that page? Yeah. Okay, I want you to think about it. Okay, I'm thinking. Okay, and, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna think across the hemisphere. Across the hemisphere. You think, um, hot. Are, are you, you hot? Um, um, are you saying? Or is it cold? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, which you've given me a choice. Which uh, yeah, uh, give me a choice. Yeah. So which one is it? Uh, I think I think it's cold. But yeah, but, very uh, good. <laughs> good. Anyway, I'm impressed. <laughs> Thank you. How okay. did you do that? It's magic. Uh, oh, it's magic. <laughs> I like to do magic. Okay, that's great. Okay. Anyway. Yeah, I'm I'm very impressed. Thank you. Unless you cheated, but um, well, I would never accuse cheating. you of that. No, all magic is cheating. Yeah. All magic is lying. Yeah, that's that's, that's really impressive. Okay. When I tell you it's magic, it means I'm lying to you. That's cool. <laughs> okay. Well, um, now now you you put me off my stride. I've got to think of what. what Sorry, what, I'm what, glad I did. What, I mean, I can do what that were we talking about? Oh, that's right. Um, so so, but don't we know that? Um, Water is is H two O. Isn't isn't that settled? I mean, is well, it, it's it, it's it's no, almost zero. Exactly. I'll, give you, I'll give you an example. Perfect yeah. example. Some water is D two O. Okay. Right. So there you go. There's one example. So, what, so what's, what's water is always H two O, and you take the ocean water and you find out some of it isn't H two O. What's D, so, what's DTO? What's DTO? Deuterium. It's the heavy heavy hydrogen. So that's is that that's heavy water, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. About one part in a hundred thousand of water, if it, if you pick it out of any any water, like the river right outside my house, it, one part in a hundred thousand of it'll be uh, it'll be uh, heavy water. Yeah. And so there you go. Just in one example. Yeah. Okay. And if we, you know, and I mean, and 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 you know, we could go, we could go further, saying, well, yeah, okay, but let's look closer. Well, it's you know, it's really not that. It's it's uh, it's uh, it's sixteen. It's eight protons and eight neutrons and eight electrons uh, in one place, and another another proton and electron in another place, and they're whirling around. And so, when you really look at it closely. That H and O really don't mean anything. It's just a bunch of collections of protons, neutrons, and electrons. Until you look even closer, and then you find out it's it's quarks and um, and and electrons. And we don't know whether we, if you look closer still, what what you find. So there's lots of there's lots of clearly the definition of H two O on a works on a reasonable scale, but once you get to a small scale, that it has no meaning. Right. Yeah. And you've also said. Um sort of truth truth is domain specific truth is what domain specific which is sort of what you're talking about now so just elaborate on that well one of the great discoveries in science it took a while and actually Nobel Prize was given by Ken Wilson for it but um, um, was that the laws of physics evolve on scale on scales and even the best law of physics that we now have, the quantum and electrodynamics, which allows us to compare theory and experiment to 
14 or 15 decimal places of accuracy. There's no other scientific theory that even approaches it in, in, in accuracy and, and, and excellence. Uh, but even that theory we know um, applies only over a limited scale of, 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 of the universe. And when you get to a small enough scale, that theory no longer is the correct theory of, of nature. And so um, the fact that science has domains of validity is important, and it's really important to recognize, first of all, not to overreach and think your apply, ideas apply beyond their domain of applicability, but also it's exciting to discover and open your mind to the possibility that those, I was going to say sacred laws because they're, some, they're not <laughs> sacred in any way, but those, those laws that you revere so much um, may be wrong, and that's wonderful if you're a scientist because it means there's again something new to discover. Yeah, I mean, the what I sort of ironically what you're talking about sort of resonates with sort of the postmodernism, you know, the rel rel relativism of postmodernism. Well, but, I, but so tell me, yeah. tell me why why postmodernism is wrong in that sense why it's well, not because, the same because it's not it's like saying it's confusing the statement we don't know there's more we don't know than we do with this statement we don't know anything okay it's true that the science has limited domain ability but there are regions over which it's absolutely true it's absolutely true over a domain that if i take a ball and drop it here it's going to fall and whatever i learn about quantum gravity a million years from now a ball held at the Earth's surface, you let go, it's going to fall. Objectively, it doesn't matter whether you're whether you're Caucasian, female, gender neutral, or 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 whatever. You let it go, it's going to fall. But doesn't that um, negate sort of what you said earlier that there's no absolute truth? I mean, I, well, by absolute truth, I mean universal over all times and all space. Okay, that's right. different. Right. Okay, but their domain over the domain in which scientific theories are valid, they are correct, and if they're not, we we change them until they are. Yeah. And and moreover, they're objective. It's not subjective. It's not socially determined. the The domain of validity doesn't depend upon the social characteristics of the people. It depends on the physical characteristics of the world. So the confusion is that somehow. The, claiming that the science is a delimited domain of uh, applicability, and that depends upon who's asking the question. And the great thing about science is it doesn't matter who's asking the question because the answers are independent. They're actually objective. And we assure they're objective by having a community of scientists of many different cultures, races, whatever, checking you all the time. The dialectic of science that I talked about in the epilogue is what's important. Constantly things are being checked and rechecked People would love to prove you wrong, just like I would love to prove someone wrong, because in science, that's the way you get ahead. And so um, that constant checking and verification ensures that that the ideas that survive are are culturally independent. Yeah. And also, you know, power independent. You know, postmodernism is sort of obsessed with power dynamics. Well, it's absolutely. And the great example of that is, is let's say, is uh, uh, Superman and Chandrasekhar, right? Who, who won the Nobel Prize eventually for figuring, uh, ultimately discovering the physics that led to the exist understanding of neutron stars and black holes, who first came up with his ideas when he was an Indian 
student traveling on a boat to Cambridge to study with with um, Sir Arthur Stanley Eddington and and um, and Eddington, who was the epitome of power and prestige, um, ultimately made fun of Chandra Sekhar and, and his ideas and, and and everything else. But nowadays, who do people remember? They don't remember Sir Arthur Stanley Eddington for that reason. They remember Chandra Sekhar won the Nobel Prize, which Eddington certainly never did, yeah. um, because the ideas worked. And and there isn't you know anyone can question anyone else's ideas. There no there's no uh, and that's part of the problem, by the way, when we, when I was to be chairman of a physics department, we could get, in the older days, we would get great Chinese students because they'd do wonderfully on exams. But when it came to going to research, it wasn't always the way because one, one of the reasons they had a problem is they respected their professors too much. They wouldn't question their professors. And, and of course, it's that questioning that, that, that makes progress. And... And and the fact that anyone, if if I said something on the blackboard that's wrong, and you know any student should be able to say it's wrong and explain why. I'm sorry, my dog is pacing again. That's right. We you know adds adds character. Yeah. Okay, hold on one second. I'm gonna I'm gonna send the dog down. <laughs> and then, and then, okay, dinner time for dinner time for the dog. So they know they've lost interest in you and me. Okay, good. Okay. What are your thoughts on journalism? On journalism? Well, in principle, it's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> in practice, not so much anymore. Um, you know, I, I've I've spent a lot of my life talking to journalists and trying to help them with their job and explaining different things that they might ask about, and um, and worked closely with journalists for a long time. But journalism is 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 being driven by um, well. First of all, journalists many journalists have a problem with science, in that journalists are taught that there's two sides to every question, and in science one side's usually wrong, hmm. and 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 just understanding that is a problem for many journalists. You know, they think that just by you know they talk to people and they can all you can always find someone some someone with a quote PhD who disagrees, and if you're interested in in making it seem like it's uh, controversial, you can almost make any idea controversial, including uh, around Earth. I, I, I talked to a journalist, uh, there was a conference, a journalist, a conference of 300 people with PhDs who think the Earth is flat. My goodness, right? But so so you have to recognize that that that, you, that this notion, that things that, that disagree with evidence are wrong. And, and, and that's really important. So I think that's a thing that many journalists, when they study science, have to get over. But more than that, lately, it's 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 become coming. The pressures of economics, and the pressures of of, of clicking and get and getting clicks on, on on online, have turned many journalists. First of all, there's not enough time to explore questions in detail, and they're not paid enough to spend enough time to explore questions in detail. So often they just regurgitate what they hear. But more importantly, they try and find controversy and salaciousness. And um, and and even science journalism, which is something I've respected for a long time, is getting abysmally bad. Um, science magazines that I was once affiliated with in strong ways, like Scientific American, which was wonderful, becoming a political rag, and 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 um, and and the same with even science journals like Science Magazine, um, 
just you know bending to the whim of of politics and and and, um, and it's a shame to see it so so I think um, my experience with journalists lately has been far less um, far less satisfying than it was before they're driven by many other desires and um, and it's unfortunate um, and 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 I th I think it's the demands of immediate gratification, combined with the with the with the cult, the economic and cultural demands of, of of getting people to read stuff that's that's pushing journalism to the lowest common denominator. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I would agree with everything you said there. And and uh, and you know, there's also the fact that journalists, you know, uh, aren't scientists in general. And that's fine. They don't. They shouldn't be. But many of them are, are afraid of science, and that's an unfortunate thing. What? And so they, they they don't understand the scientific process, or they're they're intimidated from asking questions, or um, or even exploring questions, or even thinking that certain ideas are explicable to the public. All of which, of course, are are are, are bad. Yeah. Now we are running out of time. So before we run out of time. What is time? I wish I had time to tell you. Um, um, time, you know, the time is the first chapter of my book for a variety of reasons, but I think it's one of the reasons is it, it's one of the first things that sort of frustrates people. Is this inexorable march forward in time towards getting older, and 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 wouldn't we all be like to be able to go backwards in time? And the realization that. You know, and it's changed more than many other ideas in the last century. Time was universal, and then, as I talked about, it's not. It, time depends upon the observer, and it, time is different in the gravitational field. And is time travel possible? Maybe. We don't know. Um, some people even say time is an illusion, that if you actually have a theory of, uh, of super space, or, or, or if, you, if you have a theory of, 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 since gravity is a theory of time, uh, the, the quantum mechanical wave function of the universe will involve the whole history of the universe and then maybe so all of time is sort of happening and and they make and, and that statement that that time is an illusion as I point out well maybe in some fundamental way it might be but it's kind of an irrelevant question or because if you're if you're if you're late for the 515 train to get to work um, you you notice the implications so if someone tells you oh well don't worry about it. Time is an illusion. It's not going to give you much solace. And um, and so, but what time is right now is a strange thing. You know, in space and time, to describe the playing field of events. And what special and general relativity has done is unify them so that we live in a space time. That space and time are not distinguishable. One person's space can be another person's time. But then that does beg this ridiculous question of, well, look, if I can go to New Zealand and back, and I certainly like to. Um, then, then why can't I go to the future and back, or the past and back? And that's one of that's a deep and fundamental question, and 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 and, I, and we don't have time to talk about it here. But but except for the fact that 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 we we know that the theory allows you to mathematically write down universes where you could travel in time backwards and forwards. The question is, does the laws of physics allow you to create those mathematical universes? And that's an open question, uh, which is which makes it exciting, right? Because it means it's not impossible. I bet it's like I bet you can't do it, but 
at least we we can't prove for certain that you can't and that leaves a little ray of hope right um that 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 people in the building time machines in their basement continue can continue to hold on to although as i point out in my book i think it's the first time i pointed this out although i've talked about it the time machines have to be time and space machines which no one ever gets right i like i like either because the earth is moving at 30 kilometers per second around the sun you go back in time an hour and 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 you and in the same place and you're going to find yourself out in, in in empty space and it won't be a very hospitable environment yeah yeah uh, is is time just a function of change because in a universe with with no, with no movement is there any time well look it's not that time is a function of change time is the is the, is the parameter that describes whether there is change or not uh i think it, 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 a static system look time or general relativity already tells us that time that 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 clocks are arbitrary in a sense that you can imagine different coordinate systems with different times and that and that there and that the laws of physics are independent of which coordinate system you you choose so the measurement of time in some sense is 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 a little is also relative and and arbitrary um and so if if you have a system in which um nothing is happening literally then you're clearly free to choose any time parameter you want or or ignore the time parameter um the system is static and and the results are the same independent of time and so what happens at one time slice is true for all time slices um and then time becomes an irrelevant parameter it's still there but it and it still exists but it's not relevant to the equations right um but how it fits in as being more than just a parameter is a mystery that we still don't have the answer to right and and then and now and unknown 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 and it's one of the first known unknowns that i and one of the most fascinating ones which is one of the reasons i began the book with it yeah well let's finish on on one one more question what the hell is space then <laughs> Um, space is that um, which allows you to uh, to get from place to place. <laughs> it allows my dogs to go down to dinner. Yeah. And um, but, um, but what, what actually is it though? It's a it's a, it describe it's the same as time. It's it it's a parameter that describes the playing field of action. Space time points represent events, and science and physics in particular is about dynamics things happening and 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 space time points describe where and when interactions happen and that's it as far as as far as laws of physics is concerned space is a parameter and different and you can choose different sets of coordinates that's the great thing of einstein and 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 the results will appear to be very different the description of the results will be very different in different coordinates but the but the fundamental physics will be precisely the same now there are many uh, there are many unknowns about space including whether the three dimensions of space that we measure and the one dimension of time which turns us into a four dimensional universe is all there is are there extra dimensions of space are there extra, does space go on forever all of these things which i talk about in the book are fundamental questions which ultimately we don't have the answer to but we have we have interesting ideas about what might what might be the answer and what's amazing is there may even be ways of testing these ideas but um 
But the nature of space on its larger scales is one of the biggest mysteries in physics. Um, uh, but space, and in fact, in, in the theory of quantum gravity, space and time are quantum mechanical variables, which themselves are, are fluctuating on the smallest scales of the universe, which may mean that new universes are popping in, in and out of existence all the time. And so um, uh, when we get to the quantum mechanics, of gravity, space and time become the fundamental variables of nature. Wow. And, um, and what, and, but since we don't have a theory of quantum gravity, we don't know yet how to manipulate those variables um, quantum mechanically. And the big open question is, well, which is more fundamental, gravity or, uh, or quantum mechanics? And most of us think it's quantum mechanics and that we'll eventually have a quantum theory of gravity which will supersede general relativity on the smallest scales. But but some physicists, and there's some really good ones, like my friend Gerard Tuft, who won a Nobel Prize, uh, um, who still think ultimately quantum mechanics isn't fundamental and it will be replaced by something else on a more fundamental scale. I think it's wishful thinking, but but who knows? He's been he's got a good track record. Yeah. So so it's science is essentially an infinite game. Uh, well, it certainly seems to be an infinite game. There's no walls that we can tell. As far as we know, you keep asking questions, and and we don't yet have a theory of everything, or I'm, or I think it's likely that we will. That each time we expose the universe, uh, like Feynman said, one onion, there's another layer to be discovered. And so, for scientists, that's 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 great cosmic job security. Um, and uh, and so. Let's hope it's the case that there are always questions to ask. Because if there aren't, if there aren't continual questions to ask, the universe will become a pretty, pretty boring place, and uh, and won't even be places for podcasts anymore. Okay, well, it's a it's a great um, spot to finish it on. Um, what once again, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Well, it's been a pleasure again, oh. as always. And, as I say, I hope together once at some point we can be together in real life but, and talk on, in a room or on stage. But, it, it, but in the it, interim, we're very lucky that science has provided us the technology, um, even useless science, has provided <laughs> us the technology to uh, to be able to have this conversation. Yeah. Well, you know, um, I'm sure one day, hopefully so, sooner rather than later, we will be in the same space-time continuum. Well, we are we are in the same space time. <laughs> we are. <laughs> we're, we're just not coincident. Yeah, our, co really yeah coincident. Our, our coordinates will be a lot a lot more connected. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, thank Good you very much. Pleasure. You take care.